0: Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by MailChimp. More than seven million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. The following podcast contains explicit
1: language.
2: Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race. The bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You could say all of that, or you could just call this show about race. From the Panoply Studios in New York, I'm Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. Joining me here is my co-host Raquel Cepeda, author of Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina. Hello, Raquel. What up, what up? And joining us from his personal studio in Los Angeles is Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black. Hello, Baratunde.
0: Studio Tunde representing.
2: There you go. Okay, today... The recent events in Baltimore, the eruption of grief and anger and outrage in the wake of Freddie Gray's death while in police custody. We'll be spending today's whole show on the subject, looking at it from three different angles. First, what we talk about when we talk about Baltimore. Are we talking about a riot or an uprising? Are we talking about protesters and revolutionaries or hoodlums and thugs? Right and left, black and white, from mainstream media to social media, how should we frame and discuss what just happened? Second... Everyone is talking about Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Michael Brown, and yet almost no one is talking about Rakia Boyd, Ayana Stanley-Jones, Antonio Zambrano-Montes, or Corey Canoche. Black women, Hispanics, and Native Americans also suffer disproportionate violence at the hands of police. Why aren't their stories a part of this movement, too? And finally, a new economic study purports to show the impact of neighborhoods on social and economic mobility. The single worst place in America for young black men to grow up as measured by future potential earning power, Baltimore, Maryland. What does this new report tell us about the conditions that cause the unrest and what is needed to move forward? We will discuss. Then we'll wrap things up with our tips and recommendations, something we like to call Yo, Check This Out. And for those of you interested in being a part of our national conversation about conversations about race, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at showaboutrace or point your internet browser at showaboutrace.com. Send us your thoughts, tweets, and comments. Your voices will be a part of our show. In a new bonus segment we're starting this week called The B-Side, here's how it works. We start the conversation here. After the episode drops, we collect your feedback on email and social media. Then we meet back here and continue the conversation with your ideas and opinions in the mix. The B-side for last week's show, where we discussed the first season of Fresh Off the Boat, the Dixon Social Media Challenge, and white people passing as non-white is available now. And one more thing. If you like this show, subscribe in iTunes and leave us a rating, hopefully a good rating. It's easy, it's free, and it makes our corporate overlords happy, which will keep About Race coming to you. So, Raquel Baratunde, how's everyone doing today?
0: (laughs) Doing good, man. Doing really good. I... Stole a selfie with Miss <laughs> Oprah Winfrey this week out in L.A. Got to visit the studios for the Oprah Winfrey Network as part of this fast company conference. They did this big group photo, and I'm like, I'm not really about group photos when it could just be me and Oprah. So everybody's looking over at the camera. I'm looking at my front-facing c- camera. Got me and Oprah in the mix. Uh, it's an opportune day shot. She gave me some serious. Yeah. serious side-eye. That was so uh, funny. Which you can see, I posted it to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, but it was a fun, fun time.
3: So what's up with me? Let's see. I just sold a book. Um, Congratulations. Like for like, no. Yeah, to Beacon Press. It's called Easter Broadway and it's a memoir about gentrification. And basically, you know, the West side of Broadway is more affluent and is where mostly, you know, white, affluent, and now a lot of international people live. And then the Easter Broadway, which is the gentrified side, uh, which is kind of being encroached upon. And I want to write about that community, that community that gave me community and love when I was growing up before I forget what it looked like and I forget the people. And um, yesterday, I was in Philly. So I went to the screening of my husband's film. It's called Fresh Dress and it's a CNN doc. And it's funny because it's being marketed as this like really like happy, go-lucky, all-fashioned, feel-good doc. And actually, I learned a lot about how fashion and flying cut sleeves which is like early 60s you know gang kind of fashion is correlated to police brutality
1: Hmm. and it was
3: really really interesting and so on point with what's going on now so i'm really looking forward to it coming out on the 26th and you guys coming to the premiere when we have it in new york city I
0: i will be there definitely and tanner what's up with
2: you nothing is going on with me i sit at home and take care of an 18-month-year-old kid. The reason why nothing is going on is because I'm in the last month of writing a book, but I'm ghostwriting the book, so I can't really talk about it. But needless to say, it is a book that will, I think, totally change the way people think about uh, the police. It (laughs) It is very much related to the topic at hand today. Nice. Big promises That's and big That's a big,
3: big huge promise. <laughs> if you guys could only see me rolling my eyes again.
2: So I don't have any other news to report because I sit in my apartment all day with my head buried in this book. So let's just hand things over to you, today to take us into our discussion today.
0: Thank you, Tanner. The last time we taped this podcast, we didn't know what was about to go down in Baltimore. And so we had this somewhat awkward non-acknowledgement of like a major literal racial conflagration in the country. And a show about race had nothing to say about it except in in our title, which was, you know, that we recorded this before. So now we are two weeks later and and a lot has gone down. And the basic facts uh, of this case are pretty well known. Freddie Gray uh, was taken into police custody. He was uh, driven around in the back of this paddy wagon. He emerged with a nearly severed spine and died shortly thereafter. After his funeral, protests erupted and some of them erupted further into conflicts between police and citizens, violence, burning, cop cars were destroyed. And we have a lot of discussion in social media and mainstream media about whether rioting is acceptable as a form of protest, whether it's purely criminal uh, and thuggish. There was a a major flare up on CNN, uh, among many other places, Reverend Jamal Bryant in particular saying, these are not thugs. These are upset and frustrated children and how do we refer to the people who are out in the streets protesting or committing acts of violence and destruction he continued he said it's amazing you don't call six police officers who kill a man without probable cause thugs but children who are frustrated and don't have an outlet you call them thugs thugs is the 21st century word for the n-word it's repulsive and offensive to every person who's a parent trying to raise children interpreting what's taking place in this hour And coming in as sort of professor-in-chief, our president, Barack Obama, weighed in and said, this isn't new, it's been going on for decades, and without making excuses for criminal activities that take place in these communities, you have impoverished communities that have been stripped away of opportunity, children born into abject poverty and their parents uh, can barely do right by them. I'd love to share a brief clip of the president who's speaking at his My Brother's Keeper initiative launch. to to have a little more of a texture of of what our
1: commander and professor-in-chief had to say on this. Some communities have consistently had the odds stacked against them. That there's a tragic history in this country that has made it tougher for some. And, And folks living in those communities, and especially young people living in those communities, could use some help to change those odds. It's true of some rural communities where there's chronic poverty. It's true of some manufacturing communities that have suffered after factories they depended on closed their doors. It's true for young people of color, especially boys and young men. And that sense of unfairness and of powerlessness, of people not hearing their voices, That's helped fuel some of the protests that we've seen in places like Baltimore and Ferguson and right here in New York. The catalysts of those protests were the tragic deaths of young men and a feeling that law is not always applied evenly in this country. In too many places in this country, black boys and black men, Latino boys, Latino men, they experience being treated differently by law enforcement. Which is why in addressing the issues in Baltimore or Ferguson or New York, the point I made was that if we're just looking at policing, we're looking at it too narrowly. So that was President Obama providing some context,
0: some explanation uh, on what's happening here. And the last thing to round out before you know I fully open this up, I'm so curious where you guys are coming out on this. I'd like to kind of give out a, a little bit of a, some thumbs up and some awards for Ways people have been talking about Baltimore that deserve some positive reinforcement. Adam Serwer over at BuzzFeed, who I used to work with years ago over at Jack and Jill Politics, he said uh, Monday's riots in Charm City marked the end of an era where black outrage can be mollified by greater representation while stark inequalities exist. American cities cannot avoid unrest simply by placing black people at the helm as long as progress for so many is ephemeral. An unjust system remains unjust no matter the ethnicity of its caretakers. At Slate, Jamal Bowie wrote about the history of these things and talked about the Negro slums of the 1910s or the depressed projects and vacant blocks of the 2010s. When the same pressures of crime and social dislocation continue to press on modern-day residents of the inner city, it was the goal of segregationist policies to concentrate Black Baltimoreans into a single location and it has worked and surprisingly to me i want to at least acknowledge if not fully celebrate rich lowry who writes dating back to the kerner commission in the aftermath of the riots of the 1960s the left's go-to solution to urban problems within more social programs but since then we've gotten more programs and as many problems the left has a soft spot for rioters, and it rolls out intellectually rancid excuse making for the destruction of property. And Rich Lowry is also acknowledged in some different way some of what Serwer and Bowie were talking about, which is look, you got black leadership, you got black folk running 50% of the police department, and still in this city of Baltimore, you've got a declining population, declining tax base to some degree, and massive problems. So I was happy to at least see people looking back historically to try to explain what's happening and not just focusing on the tragedy of Freddie Gray. Where are you guys coming out on the language wars about thugs versus revolutionaries, about riots versus uprisings, and about people's attempts to make sense of how Baltimore is different and and what its history has to say about, about where we are?
3: Well, you know, first of all, I want to give out an award posthumously to James Baldwin. Esquire recently republished an article from 1968, right after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. I'm going to quote, the interviewer said, what would you say ought to be done to improve the relationship of the police with the black community. And Baldwin said, You would have to educate them. I really have no quarrel, particularly with the policemen. I can see the trouble they're in. They're hopelessly ignorant and terribly frightened. They believe everything they see on television, as most people do in this country. They are endlessly respectable, which means to say they are Saturday night sinners. The country has got the police force it deserves and of course if a policeman sees a black cat in what he considers a strange place he's going to stop him and you know of course the black cat's going to get angry and then somebody may die but it's one of the results of the cultivation in this country of ignorance those cats in the Harlem street those white cops they are scared to death and they should be scared to death but that's how black boys die because the police are scared and it's not the policeman's fault it's the country's fault and that really stood out to me when he said yeah. that because it's the same as it ever was, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing that I saw in all in many of the articles, right and left wing articles, a lot of the policemen, when kids and the community were asking them, you know, what are you doing here? What's going on? Trying to talk to them about whatever. They were just seeing through them. They were acting as if they were invisible. They are dressed up to the nines in riot gear. Right. They have their, The National Guard is there and the community just wants to know what the fuck is happening and when can I go home? And of course, after a while of being invisible, you're going to act up. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm here. I'm no longer invisible. And when people feel like they are, shit like this happens.
0: Right. You know, what you just said seems to come down on the side of like riots are explainable, right? That due to feelings of being invisible, in some ways explains, if not justifies what's going on. So in the, you know, revolutionary versus rioter language, where do you come out
3: I mean, I feel like it's basically humane, actually, to like, inflict whoop-ass on a cop sometimes because they don't respect the community. Too often, they treat blackness, brownness, otherness, non-whiteness as if it's a condition. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, we have to teach our children from the time that they're young as the mother of a mother of a son, basically to emasculate themselves in order to learn how to walk around, breathe, and continue to breathe when they're black and brown. So I'm on the side of, I don't see violence as the answer. Unfortunately, they've been violent to our community first, and at some point, you're going to react. And I'm not sure if rioting, they're calling it rioting, if that's the answer. But, I mean, I recently came across a piece in Al Jazeera that kind of listed times when rioting worked. Mm-hmm. And they were writing, but they were writing by mostly white people. So when you mostly white people write, it's not writing, it's, you know, standing up for what you believe in for the greater cause. And one of those that really stood out to me was in February of 1931, the food riots, you know, during the Great Depression. It's okay to, you know, loot. That's what they were doing. It took 100 policemen to calm them down. They smashed the windows of a grocery of a market and they just took all the food because they were hungry. So the language is what really incenses me. Because yeah. when white people do something, they're fighting for freedom. It's patriotic. And when people of communities of color do it, they're just acting like
0: thugs. Where And where are you at on all this, Tanner? Well,
2: as far as like the revolutionary versus riot angle, I, I go up the middle. I think one person who nailed it, as he always does, was ta in The Atlantic, where he said, you know, everyone questions the wisdom of a riot. No one questions the wisdom of a forest fire. And... A natural disaster, I think, is the best language to look at it. If like, yeah. The Earth's crust lies on this you know, molten magma, and the plates move around, and it creates pressure, and pressure builds up, and therefore you have earthquakes and volcanoes. America is built on this history of racist violence and white supremacy, and there's all these tectonic forces moving around, and they're going to erupt. I think the Fox News contingent who wants to berate the thugs and the rioters and use that sort of language are, are going way too far, and they're completely missing the point, and they're not getting at... The historical undertones. But I think on the left and in the racial justice movement, there's a little bit of a tendency towards grandiosity of what is a pretty small uprising, if you even want to give it the credit of calling that. You know, it was a hundred kids in Baltimore. That's the other thing, too, in the way that the left is talking about it. Out of the same outlets you have people saying, Well, there were thousands of peaceful demonstrators. This was only, you know, a hundred bad apples casting a bad image on the lot, and that's all the media focused on. But at the same time, they want to say, well. Violence is what's coming, and this is the tip of the spear, and this is an uprising. Well, what, which was it? Was it 100 kids giving it a bad name to what was a largely peaceful protest, or was it the tip of the spear and the beginning of a revolution? It kind of can't be both. Mm. And so I think we just need to talk about this, again, like you know, a forest fire or an earthquake, and you have to deal with those underlying forces. You have to relieve the pressure on the San Andreas Fault Line, or you're going to get an earthquake. I take issue with some of the riots get results language which is that riots get results but they don't produce solutions
0: Mm. everyone
2: points to oh after the 1968 riots you had the fair housing act you had this huge upsurge of affirmative action and that's true there was literally millions and billions of dollars thrown at the black community after that happened same thing after the 1992 riots before the 1992 riots Corporate diversity departments were like nowhere. You never heard about that. And then after the 1992 riots, every corporation in America had a full-fledged diversity this, diversity that. And yet through it all, what has it been? The the, the black unemployment rate remains double, the white unemployment rate, the wealth gap remains the same. They throw money at, at the problem until it goes away, and then it's over. So riots will produce results. The results they produce will get the establishment to throw just as much money at you as they need to to get you to shut up and not a nickel more. And I think also you have to look at the other side of the balance sheet, right? You can't just look at what black people get because of the riots. You have to look at what is subtracted because of the riots. And in a totally intangible way, out in the suburbs, the little wall that white people have built around their gated community of wealth, there's just one more brick on the wall after every riot. It's just like, all right, we're going to put another brick there because it's getting it's getting a little
0: hairy out there. So let's wall this off a little bit more. I'd love to give a, an additional award to Larry Wilmore from the nightly show on Comedy Central. Uh, this is the show that's replaced Colbert following The Daily Show. And Larry went to Baltimore. Uh, he went there and met up with members of the Black Gorilla family, the Bloods and the Crips rival gangs. And he offered them pie and an <laughs> opportunity to explain what their role in all of this has been, which is a bit counter to the language uh, of thugs and criminals kind of fomenting destruction for its own sake.
3: Where do
2: you guys think the anger in the community comes from? Where do you think that comes from?
0: You know, the analogy I've been using for the last couple of days is, all right, you see this corner on this Mm -hmm. menu right here? This is a corner. Here's a person. This is you. All right. Right. It's only so far back into this corner that you can push me before I have to push back right that's what happened they pushed back
2: and that's what a lot of america can't relate to right now they They don't understand that of course not if you live in a
0: million dollar house how can you relate to living in the hood getting pushed you're good so you can't understand what we're going through same as when you'd be like hey man i gotta pay my property tax i can't
3: relate to that i've paid property tax before you know what this reminds me of what's that have you ever seen that documentary bastards of the party Yes. It's my favorite documentary about the history of gangs in L.A. And it was actually made by a blood by the name of Clay Sloan Bone. They talked about how there was a gang truce at some point after the Rodney King incident and how it was actually the cops that came in and started basically coin tell proing the gang members on each side until it became very tense again. They started fighting and the truce was called off. You know, I get the feeling I'm just seeing history repeat itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it keeps the officials and the cops employed when they have young toughs, if you will, killing each other and committing crime. It gives them the go ahead to continue to brutalize young black men in that neighborhood. To that point,
2: one thing that I think is sort of a false comparison that keeps getting made over and over again by sort of the people who want this to be the spark of a revolutionary moment. Everyone says, oh, well, the Tea Party was a riot. They went and they destroyed property and they threw it in the harbor. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, violence can be very effective. But for violence to be effective, you have to win, right? You have mm-hmm. to go all the way and get the British out of the country. And if the violence doesn't win, then really you're just poking the bear, right? If if we had gone after the British Empire and not fully kicked them out of the country, then, you know, as, as our friend from Baltimore, Omar, might say, if you come at the king, you best not miss, right? Yeah, if, you come at the ba- if you come at the Baltimore PD, you best not miss. Violence works if you win. And so the question is, do we see this as the beginning of the violent overthrow of the American government? It would seem to me that violence is very effective for overthrowing a system. Violence is very effective for protecting an entrenched system. But violence is not very good for seeking redress within a system.
0: I think violence is also good for calling attention at least temporarily focusing attention on a problem. And what's different about Baltimore, was so interesting to me, is that there have been some political victories, like such a significant number of placing human bodies in power victories. Black police chief, black mayor, head of schools, half the cops are black. And so that suggests really strongly that winning needs to be defined very differently than what's been offered up. That you don't win by having some conflagration and then concessions of kind of job placement within the political system, because that hasn't solved Baltimore's problem. And I'm glad to see those stories coming out that talk about that, because it's a warning to Ferguson, <laughs> right? Right. When, mm-hmm. when so much the conversation about Ferguson was well, look at the mismatch in black cops versus, you know, poor black citizens. Well, Baltimore's your future. You know, that's not a very great picture if that's like your crystal ball is pretty dirty
2: right one thing about the cost benefit of riots working i mean i think it's like what we might see in baltimore when all this is is settled in the liberty city riots in 1980 which was started by the rodney king of miami this guy arthur mcduffie beaten to death by cops it was horrible all the cops got off and there was a huge riot just like LA. And the positive benefit of it is that they changed the laws for jury selection so that more blacks could get on juries because there was a huge mm. problem of blacks people never getting on juries. So that you say, oh, the riots got that result. But the other result is, is that of, of them all the financial aid and loans that went in to rebuild Liberty City after the riots, 90% went to whites and Hispanics because they owned the property. The property was what got compensated. And so of the money went to whites and Hispanics, and less than half of that money was used to rebuild in Liberty City. The other half, they used it to relocate. We can give the last word on this, I think, to James Baldwin, also from the Esquire article talking about what rides produce or what white people will do in response to rides. He said, I'll tell you what you'll do. You'll do what you did last summer and the summer before that. You'll pour some money into the ghetto, and it will end up in the hands of various adventurers. In the first place, $13 and some change is not meant to do anything, and a couple of cats will make it, and the rest of it will be right where they were.
0: So that's where we'll leave it for now in terms of how we've talked about what's going on in Baltimore. The poignant, not necessarily uplifting, frighteningly accurate across decades words of James Baldwin. Thank you for that quote, Tanner. Raquel, uh, will you bring us upliftment and happiness and positivity? Oh, hell no.
3: (laughs) There's no upliftment or positivity. Everybody's talking about like Freddie Gray and Eric Gardner and... There's so many people, I can't even think of them all on the top of my head right now. And nobody's talking about Jessica Hernandez or Andy Lopez, a 13-year-old who was shot while playing with a toy gun. Nobody's talking about Ryan Ronquillo. Nobody's talking about Yanira Serrano. So why aren't these stories part of the narrative of Black Lives Matter? Nearly 20% of those unarmed Black Americans killed by cops in the last 15 years are categorized as Black women. I say categorized as black women because we really don't know if they're Latino or not or, you know, how race is in the eye of the beholder. And also because statistics that are kept are very paltry. So I've gotten different numbers. And one of the numbers I've gotten was uh, the racial group most likely to be killed by law enforcement is Native Americans, followed by African-Americans, Latino, white and Asian-Americans. So despite having to deal with similar issues, namely working and breathing in America in every shade of brown, Latinos have been marginalized from the discussion, and so have women, and women have been so on the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement. What's the science behind that, Baratunde? I'm going to throw this out to you first.
0: Yeah, and and those same stats, you shared them with us before, and I think it's worth our listeners hearing. The Center for um, Juvenile Justice essentially pulled a lot of this data together. You know, like you said, the racial group most likely to be killed by law enforcement is Native Americans. They represent 0.8% of the population, but comprise 1.9% of police killings, so just very outsized. Then African Americans, we're 13% who victims in 26% of police shootings, and we die 2.8 times the rate of white non-Latinos. Latinos Latinos are victimized by police killings at a level of 30% above the rate of white non-Latinos. So, the overall number is down, but the ratios are still really off. And here, here's what I think is happening. I think the historical dominance of men in the civil rights movement, you know, men's voices. Uh, we gave all this love to James Baldwin. He just talked about black men. He was talking about black cats. He was talking about a man trying to take care of his family. He's talking about a man not being able to get a job. And yeah, it was the late 1960s. But even then, the share of labor and earnings and, and family leadership was. Not just men doing all that work. And there's a lot of tension in the movement about who got the credit, who got to make decisions and what the role of women was. So I think we're seeing that decades later in who becomes the poster child for injustice. And it's usually a man. I also, in one of the articles you shared, Raquel, this struck me so to the core. The idea that black women don't need help, you know, that we see them as almost these supernatural, magical negresses they're so strong. They're so wise. In film, it's always the proud, strong black woman who carries the weight of black America, nay the diaspora, on her shoulders. So yeah, maybe a few of them die or get sexually abused or are totally ignored by the system, but that's because they're so strong and they could just do it all. Like They've been leaning in since before Cheryl Sandberg wrote the title, and so it's almost this like, oppression through like excessive celebration or this assumption that you're superhuman. This way of dehumanizing someone by assuming that they're so superhuman that they don't need compassion, that they don't need recognition or, or acknowledgement. So I think there's a bit of that at play in why we don't hear about the Rakia boys and so many others who have been also victims of police violence or sexual harassment. It made me think of how we, you know, the positive stereotypes of Asian Americans, right? Right. Model minorities, great at, great math, at math, so industrious. <laughs> yeah. Like. That's not always helpful to assume that. Now, black women aren't on the generally the positive receiving end of American perception, right? There's, there's video hoes, over-sexualized, et cetera. But I think in the moral strength category, we've just seen these like wizened, superhumanly strong people. And that's a part of why. The cases, you know, don't resonate. You see it in the coverage of kidnappings and black women are, can't be victims because look what they've survived.
3: Very similar in the, even though we're way more marginalized than black american women and men are latinos we're so splintered even though it's sad because we don't like james baldwin said right we don't learn about our history right we still haven't learned about our history if we did we'd find that we both come from the same diasporic wellspring we come from the same mm. place and it just would make sense for us to coalesce but what you see on tv what you see in the media is completely different and the rare times that you see latin women on tv that i've seen i started watching all kinds of everything in the past couple of weeks to prepare myself for this. I've seen mostly Latino women claw at each other and debase themselves on television. They get screen time. Also one in three women in the world are going to be victims of violence at some point in their lives. I see this yeah. on the internet when it comes to trolling and how women are, are treated versus men on the internet and when, when they write or whatever, express themselves online. And also even in the way that they're being completely rendered invisible It doesn't take anything away of the fact that black American men are public enemy number one, but it's like such an incomplete narrative that I think it would just be a lot more resonant if we just coalesced a bit. What do you think, Tanner? What do you think about minorities coalescing? And also, do you think Latina men and women are further marginalized from the community? And the fact that we have there's so many of us. Why do you think that is? What is it going to take for us? to become part of the conversation. Because the, the
2: black-white narrative from the white point of view and probably the white people who run the conversation, the black-white narrative is the narrative. That's what's in the front of our brain. And black men are probably at the forefront of that because the flip side of the black women being indomitable is the black men being the threat. And so, therefore, the conflict between black men and police has become the story. I think you have a bias that keeps these stories from breaking into the media to start with. And then the bias within the media is... Basically, once the media has a story, that's the story, right? There's a lot of rape that happens in this country that doesn't involve fraternities on college campuses. There's a lot of pedophilia in this country that doesn't involve Catholic priests and or assistant coaches at Penn State University, except that those are the narratives. And so the media narrative has become these young black men with cops. And every time there's a new one of those, it just gets thrown another log onto the fire and we get to keep the story going because that's the laziness of the media narrative. Whereas the Hispanic story, their only story is immigration. If it does, like you say, you yeah. only get called to be on TV to talk about immigration. If it doesn't fit in that narrative, it's like, well, we don't know what to do with it. And as far as the Native American narrative in mainstream media, there isn't one.
0: Right. Yeah, it's like, who are right. they? Who are they? And we it's, finish it's, them off? Right. Like, that's not even no, a part the of way, the story of America.
2: You know when you get a Facebook friend request from like someone in high school and you're like, Who? Oh, yeah, that guy. That's basically what white people think of Native Americans. That's the amount that their story penetrates our consciousness day to day. So those stories just don't get picked up. And then it just becomes a snowball effect of you weren't picked up at the beginning. So two years down the line, you're not part of the larger narrative and it just keeps feeding on itself.
3: And I see now how the neglect is affecting at least Latino American teenagers. I was reading this morning a part of a Harvard study that stated, the future of any society depends on its ability to foster the healthy development of the next generation. Latin American teenagers right now have the highest suicide and suicide ideation, meaning that they fantasize about suicide, almost twice as likely as their black American counterparts and three times as likely as their white American counterparts. And I can see this because toxic stress, one of the responses to being neglected and being um, subjected to food deserts and prolonged adversity uh, manifests itself in that way. And this is the way that right now I'm seeing it in my society, in my community, through this depression.
0: On the coalescing note, there's an article on uh, Latino Rebels by Alberto Rattana and, and he wrote a piece, the headline of which is, Why Latinos Should Speak Up for Black Lives. And obviously, in the context of hashtag Black Lives Matter, this felt a bit interesting. One of the things he wrote is because of my deep connection to and love for South Los Angeles, where he lives and works, I feel a sense of responsibility to urge Latinos to show support for black lives. In South LA, we live next to each other. We send our kids to the same schools, eat at the same restaurants and share the same buses. We share many of the same injustices. Our fate and the future of our community is inextricably linked. While we may come from different places and through different circumstances, our futures will color the very soul of our nation. And so in this notion of coalescing is the idea that we're all linked in the future, that we need each other. And the, the poetry and the, the sadness of sharing injustice is really important, I think, in this case. Black men and women share an injustice, though we've had separate narratives for so long. Uh to your point, Tanner, about the threat of the man and the sort of the eternal strength of the woman and how like, how that's been used to essentially divide and conquer this oversimplification of the story of Hispanics and Latinos is it's immigration or, or nothing else. Or nothing, the, yeah. The deletion of the native story from you know our history books and certainly our consciousness. We seem to be in general agreement. Why doesn't it happen? The laziness and the numbers which say like, well, most of the people who get shot are black men and this is, it's a meme. Memes don't always have sound scientific knowledge at their core, it's just, it's caught on and it's, it's viral now. And and it's and you feel like as a news person, probably like, oh, we're covering the hot trending topic. It's on the left column of Twitter. So we're doing our jobs. Uh, But there's also we're doing a disservice by having this incomplete story out there.
3: And yeah, that article talked about sharing injustices today. And, you know, my book chronicles how we have the same history how we share the same history. We're, we're literally yeah. family. And it just saddens me that we don't learn about this because we have so much in common with indigenous American people, with black Americans, Latino Americans. We all have so many things in common that it would just prove more resonant if we were to coalesce.
2: Boom. Boom. Okay, so when we come back, we'll be talking about a new study from Harvard University about the relationship between neighborhoods and social mobility. But first, a message from our sponsor, MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters and deliver high fives. The people behind MailChimp admire the projects that spread creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better emails. Okay, in the 1990s, there was an experiment called the Moving to Opportunity Experiment in Chicago, where families from the housing projects got lottery tickets to move out of low-poverty areas and into middle-income neighborhoods, and they did a control study comparing that group with the people who stayed behind in the housing project, and they expected to find a huge impact on adult earnings and child educational performance and so on and so forth, and they didn't see it, and everyone was disappointed by the results of the study. Now, Harvard economist Raj Chetty has revisited that data and combined it with a lot of data from another study he's done, and what he's found, by isolating the data on younger children, he's found that moving to these middle-income neighborhoods has a profound effect, and that the earlier you're exposed to this better environment makes a huge difference. It's so stark you can see it year by year. If you're 13, you'll do better than 14. If you're 12, you'll do better than 13, and on down. Kids who moved before they were 13 earn 30% more as adults. They're 30% more likely to go to college, far less likely to have all the negative outcomes. In fact, they're doing so well, they earn so much new income that the taxes from the raised social mobility of these people paid for the program itself. The corollary to that is that the people who are left behind in poor neighborhoods do very, very poorly. The bottom of the list is, of course, Baltimore. And the research found that a young man growing up in Baltimore, every year he spends there, his earnings as an adult fall 1.5%. And so That means that a 26-year-old black man in Baltimore earns about 28% less than he would if he had moved anywhere else in America. The study's getting a lot of press. Chetty is consulting with the Clinton campaign. And the New York Times wrote up this study saying that it is the most powerful demonstration yet, that neighborhoods, their schools, community, neighbors, local amenities, economic opportunities, and social norms are a critical factor shaping your children's outcomes. Now, what I found most interesting about this study is it gets right at the heart of one of the fundamental paradoxes, contradictions, thorny issues that we deal with in the history of race, which is that there were a lot of programs that tried to do things like this back in the early 1970s in San Fernando Valley and Chicago, these open solicitations to black homeowners to come out to the suburbs. And most of them got almost zero response because that was the peak of the black nationalist moment. And you had all of these advocates such as Reverend Albert Klieg, who was prominent in Detroit, saying things like, yes, we should fight for the right to live wherever we want, but it is desirable that the great majority of black men should choose to live together in separate Negro communities. You had people like Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton in their book, Black Power, arguing that this sort of residential dispersal will be terrible, it will dilute black political power, assimilation will be a form of cultural genocide, and that it will, in effect, be the end of the black community in America as we know it. And what black nationalists were arguing for, in effect, was what Baltimore has become, black controlled and black run. And today, you know, it's far less radical, but there's still plenty of people who would believe the same sentiment is that black people just stick to their own, take care of themselves, consolidate around their own communities for social uplift. And this study would seem to fly in the face of all that if we believe its results. And what I find interesting about the way that this study is being discussed is that everyone is discussing it really kind of in race-neutral terms as much as it's about race. Everyone talks about schools, local amenities, exposure to middle-class norms, better education, and what all these things are racially neutral code words for assimilation and the end of the black community as we know it. Is Stokely Carmichael right when he criticized this sort of thing? as being that. And so the question to me is, should we be discussing this study in starker terms in the way that Carmichael did? Baratunde, as our resident black nationalist, I'll throw
0: to you. (laughs) Thank you, white devil. (laughs) In short, Stokely is not entirely wrong. As a person who has lived these stats, my mother was, in hindsight, a great social scientist, because she moved us out of our declining Increasingly sort of crack affected neighborhood in Washington, D.C. when I was 12, which is like the cutoff, according to the study, for having the compound interest of awesomeness affect your life and better amenities. And the neighborhood got quieter that we moved to in Tacoma Park in Montgomery County, which has much better outcomes for people like me than, than the District of Columbia did uh, at the time. So, she did that, and I benefited, you know, and I went to a better school and a better neighborhood. So, like, those two things interacted really nicely with each other, and that got me to an amazing college, and then got crazy job opportunities at the point where I'm making a podcast with you two over the magic of the Internet right now. That's beautiful, and I think sort of I am an individual data point in this study and can testify to, to the power of it. On Stokely's side, though, the problem is that this study seems to argue for a kind of shuttle launch mentality. It's like, send a few people to Mars. It's, yeah. it's have a few lifeboats for the most prepared or the most fortunate to get off of some kind of sinking ship. And the home planet is not being fixed. So the study's results and the way they even wrote up is like, yeah, the people who got out much better, especially if they do it before age 13 and then the people who didn't, compound interest works in the negative as well, and they're like stranded, and what's the solution there? Escape is not a plan. Escape is like the last-ditch effort when you think your species is at risk and this is your only option, and I think we have hope we can come up with better options so that the escape isn't the most recommended course of action. It's a repairing and a rejuvenation and a re-vitalization sort of, of the home planet, Fix Earth, don't go to Mars. It overlaps, I think, a little bit with with Stokely's way of thinking. Uh, not solely separatists, but leaving the hood alone is not going to solve our, our nation's problems. We're just going to have more exceptions uh, and maybe a lot more exceptions. To
2: the point of the study, the things that they're putting in code words like social norms and stuff yeah. like that, which are code words for assimilation, you could put a billion dollars into West Baltimore for resources and schools and everything else. The one thing you can't put there is white social capital, right? Yeah. So if, if the study is saying, in so many words, that access to white social capital is the avenue to success, like black nationalists are famous for saying, well, we don't need to assimilate with white people. We just need mm-hmm. access to resources. Well, this study is kind of saying that white people are the resources.
3: Yeah, that's what I read between <laughs> the line as well. Yeah, How does yeah. that work in cities like New York that are much more diverse and everybody's kind of living?
2: You know, I, like all... I don't know. I'm getting ready to find out because... The schools and the relationship to neighborhoods and oh, we're looking Jesus. at all that now, you probably know Good more luck, than buddy. I do. The studies basically show that the more diversity there is in a city, the more segregated it is because you clump with your own kind. If you're one of the five black people in Minneapolis, well, you're just going to assimilate because you really don't have any other options. you know. Whereas if you're here in New York, there's a large enough New Yorkian community to where you can be with well, your own kind if you choose to be so.
3: Well, they're, push- they're being pushed out. They're being pushed so- out. I mean, a lot of neighborhoods in New York, social capital Mm -hmm. means that people of color get pushed out. They go up to, I remember once I went to Troy, New York. Have you been there to Troy? No. I went to Troy and it was very segregated. And it was just a few years ago. And I went to go to the AME church there because I was having a screening. And the guy who was my host said, do you want to know where all the black people are? went to that were pushed out of New York. And when we went to the neighborhoods, it was like a bunch of young black American men sitting on stoops getting half their hair braided. It looked like, it was like a John Singleton fantasy. And, it was just, <laughs> and I sitting, yeah. sitting idly doing shit, doing nothing. And, you know, New York City is getting better, so they say, but that's a code word, too, for there are less people of color, people are moving out, and people that are benefiting from the social capital are the white people moving in.
0: I mean, I think we're in this weird trap where, you know, one of the things I thought when I was reading this study or reading the article about it was, okay, so that's what happens when you pull poor and black people out and put them in a more suburban white environment. So if you want the capital to flow to the inner city, just put the white people there. Like reverse commute that. But that's what's happening already. Like that's the gentrification model Mm -hmm. and it doesn't help the black people there. They get moved to Troy Uh, and you start to see in the school system in New York. I have friends who are going through the contortions of trying to understand that system and reading books and hiring consultants and talking to people and you can kind of see the shades of each school class Mm -hmm. shifting as white flight reverses itself and they read the memo that cities are awesome and suburbs are horrible. So they come back right. after the riots of the 60s have died down, the embers are all chilled out and they want to be back in the city. So we just shift the problem. We shift the neglect to a more suburban one if the if that flow reverses Right, and that's itself. why
2: if you end up in Ferguson, it flips the other way and yeah. and it's an all-black suburb. But then the question is, if this study is correct, let's just yeah. assume for academic argument that it is, Do you need to disperse minority people to where they are the minority? Is that the policy that you need to undertake?
0: That's a sad conclusion. And I think, you know, the short answer is yes. But the long answer is that's not enough. That's certainly not a healthy psychological solution. I don't think it's a healthy long-term solution. And I think for the future of the country, it doesn't work because these minorities are not going to be minorities for much longer. The idea of dispersing minorities among whiteness only works so far as whiteness is a majority, uh, in numbers and in power. And I think, you know, the numbers are declining. The power is still very concentrated, but it's not a healthy long-term solution. And after 2042 and white people are below 50% and maybe after 2142 or 2242 where capital is less concentrated in white hands, this won't work. The idea of extracting black and brown people from their homes and mm-hmm. putting them in more white zones i think we have to f- get at the psychology and yeah, the you're, structures you're, you're, which you're, create that and you're i wonder reading...
3: also they're talking about assimilation like are you going to be um successful if you totally assimilate to the majority so what happens to a well, person i had to assimilate to that the that majority
2: way? i wouldn't have what i have if i hadn't assimilated
3: yeah but the cool thing is that you became you know white and, pr- and i'm mm-hmm. not going to say privileged because i know you i don't want you to kill me but the problem with a person of color having to do that is that it just doesn't work There have been studies, social scientists, there's one great book called Inheriting the City that I put a link to on show about race that talks about how successful communities of color assimilate. They do when they can selectively acculturate, take things they like from their parents' culture and mix that in with what they like about, you know, quote unquote, American culture and and fuse that to work for them. But what happens is I wonder how many of those kids that were quote unquote successful are like emotionally wrecked or like kind of off kilter. On a so uh, socially. Either
2: they did it well or they didn't. And that probably had a lot to do with their parents. But I think, Baratunde, you're talking about the demographic slide, that there are going to be less white people. But there's still going to be a middle class, and there's going to be a lot of Asian and Hispanic and black people in that middle class. Mm-hmm. So just because mm-hmm. the middle class is a little more beige doesn't mean that isn't still where you need to be and acculturating into whatever that group is, whether it's 2050 or wherever. And so... The question is, I mean, if you take this study to its logical conclusion, it's saying that that the solution to black poverty is exactly what Stokely Carmichael feared, which is that you can't stay in that black community. You have to escape it somehow because of what and, was done to it, not because it's inherently bad, but because of what was done to it. You have to yeah. achieve escape velocity in order to make it in an
0: America. And I, th- and I think instead what you might need to do is, is terraform the home planet. <laughs> um, part of what's happened, like all black communities, despite horrible racism and government sanctioned terrorism there were some things that worked you know there were things that have worked in this country's history closer to slavery than they're working right now and like full integration with whiteness wasn't a solution for every problem that was or or is and i i'm just not satisfied with the idea that dispersion total dispersion or total collapse of cultural identity, which is kind of implied by mainstream middle class assimilation, is correct if that mainstream middle class doesn't also shift its culture to accommodate what's coming in the country. Well, the mainstream
2: middle class uh, culture has to shift itself by definition. Yeah. If you integrate and bring black and brown people into the majority, then the majority as it stands by definition will shift because it will contain those new people.
0: And so I guess maybe what am I struggling to articulate here is It's not just leaving. It's the pressures on the community that you've left that are the problem, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just the community or the geographic location. Like the zip code is having problems because of predatory lending and over-policing and psychological neglect and all sorts of compound negative things. And so just, you know, moving someone physically out of that doesn't change the structural stuff that has to get undone or, or redone. It just puts a it. Band-Aid so, on it. It's, it's worse than putting a Band-Aid on it. Like transfers a piece of the soul out of the body feeling pain, but that body's still in pain. And so mm-hmm. as much as the middle-class culture will change with this increased immigration, you know, internal, national immigration, there's still like that original body, which is fucked because those policies are still in place. That neglect is still happening. And the gap between the home planet... <laughs> And these new middle-class colonies is only going to grow if we don't have some Mm -hmm. redefinition of the rules that define that original condition. Escape and and escape velocity and and exodus, like, these are all the wrong language because they're not problem-solving. They're problem-shifting or they're problem-abandoning. Right. Okay. Okay. That's my take. That's my modified Stokely Carmichael.
2: We will leave it there inconclusively for this week. And let's shift to, yo, check this out. Baratunde, what should people check out this week?
0: First, uh, there is a movie premiering May 15th. Know How Movie, K-N-O-W, H-O-W, Know How Movie. This is a musical, a film acted and written by youth in foster care. And it's a great example of people telling their own stories. You, there's no feature films about There's no scripted series getting Emmy nominations, but this is a really important story put out by The Possibility Project. I worked with its founder, Paul Griffin, when I was a teenager in a program called City at Peace back in D.C. using theater to really explore difficult topics Uh, and a Twitter account for for people to follow more on the point of our subject today, Policing Equity, Policing E-Q-U-I-T-Y. It's the Center for Policing Equity. The founder and and president is Dr. Philip Atiba Goff who I've known from college. He's a social psychologist working with police, and he's trying to build the nation's first database tracking police stops and use of force. And this came up in our show today. You know, we don't know. These numbers are unreliable. The government doesn't track it. It's inconsistent. Every police department has its own standard. So if you want to support us solving the problem more, that can start with understanding it better, and that can start with data. So follow Policing Equity on Twitter And for some narrative goodness, check out KnowHowMovie.com. And Raquel?
3: I'm going to take it back because we have to know where we came from to know where we are and where we're going. So there's two documentaries that I wanted people to watch. One is Bastards of the Party. It's a 2005 documentary made by former Bloods gang member Clay Sloan. And the film basically explores the creation of two of L.A.'s most notorious gangs, the Crips and the Bloods, from the perspective of the Los Angeles community. The film also denounces gang violence and presents meaningful solutions from former gang members to stop this problem. And the other documentary I would love for you guys to see is called Incident at Oglala. It's made in 1992, and the film is ostensibly about the documentation of the murder of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, but it's really about so much more than that. And as you look at what's happening, what's being said, what's being taught, how it's being taught, and who is in power, many things are going to start clicking for you, especially for folks in non-white communities. Incident at Oglala is available Last I checked on Netflix, and Bastards of the Party, for some reason, is kind of hard to get your hands on. So I usually just Google it and watch it from time to time. It's available out there. It's free. <laughs> no, There's some yeah. weird
2: streaming. It's like, some weird streaming yeah, thing, thing. But that...
3: you know what? It's such a fantastic documentary. The best one that I've ever seen about gangs, especially the ones in Los Angeles. And I really, really implore you to see it.
2: And my recommendation for this week is Sweet Land of Liberty, The Forgotten Struggle for Civil Rights in the North by Thomas Chagru. It is a great book that really gets at the heart of everything that's happened in major urban areas in the North. It's not about Baltimore per se, but it's a great book to understand a lot of the dynamics that are happening there. Okay, thank you for joining us for our discussion of the recent events in Baltimore, which we will simply refer to as events, because that's probably the most neutral name we can give them. And come and check us out on Facebook or Twitter at Show About Race, or send us an email at showaboutrace at gmail.com. We want your thoughts and ideas and feedback, and... Two weeks from now, when our next episode drops, we will also have the B-side of this episode where we will revisit some of these issues with your ideas and thoughts included in the discussion. Our producer today is Laura Mayer. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvell, and thanks also to Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And while you're at iTunes, you can stop by and give our show a rating. We would really appreciate it. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. For Raquel Cepeda and Baratunde Thurston, I'm Tanner Colby, and we won't stop until racism is over. Okay, Raquel. Ready oh, to get start started with
3: me? I thought we were going to start. What we're doing, we're doing
2: it. what's up. Oh, he's right. like, "Hey, Raquel." <laughs> right.
3: And he's intimidating right. me. He's turning around like, what?
2: "Right, Raquel, what's
0: going on?" <laughs> um, going to what see. do you have to say for yourself?
3: What's up? you can say hello?
0: Right. Hello. So, i not Ra-
3: used to talking to people, of color.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or just people.
2: <laughs> or pe- No, I'm really I work alone in my apartment all day. You're the first people I talk to all week. <laughs>